This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Michelle Mace Curran used to be a flyer, a lead solo jet fighter pilot for the Thunderbirds. And you'll hear in the episode, super embarrassing moment, in that I said she's with the Blue Angels. No, she's not. She's with the Thunderbirds. Well, I had the privilege of interacting with Mace earlier this year. Uh, we were fortunate enough to actually build her a little hype video for her speaking engagements. But Michelle is a hunter. She has been a hunter. She still considers herself a hunter today. And as you know, someone like her that's a content influencer in the, in the content space, she's got a very large following. I wanted to have her on because... I wanted to have a good conversation about what she thinks about hunting, talk about hunting in general, and just have a good conversation like we like to have on Blood Origins. So, enjoy. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it, Brittany? My name. My name. Is <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Real cute. Uh, a sheep. Uh, but yeah. He's supposed to be 40 to 50 pounds and his paws are ginormous. So he's already like 40 pounds and he's seven months old. <laughs> Well, he may get to row size. He may get to 60 pounds, 70 pounds. Yeah, that's kind of what we're thinking. I was like, I 
I don't know if you've seen. I share pictures of him on social media. Yeah, he's like your your account must have like Way exponentially increased, you know, because now you're just a dog mom and now a dog mom. Yeah, I yeah. think people only half the people there are just there for airplanes. So anytime I share anything <laughs> that's not airplane related, they're like, "Peace out." But <laughs> I mean, look at that. Well, yep, he's like, a pretty cute dog. This dog, I love him. My husband, not a fan, but I love him. What about like I this guy? I haven't like gotten myself to shave row. We live in Memphis, Tennessee. Can we have? And I, yeah, he definitely needs it. I just haven't brought myself to it. Yeah, we just got scout cut because it's already high nineties here, and he doesn't look as cute when he's not fluffy. But he was gonna die in the summer in Vegas. Yeah, them for absolutely. Well, uh, Mace, Michelle, Karen, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. Oh, thank you. We got uh, we got introduced by a good friend Phil Hoon last year, and um, and Phil sent me your teaser hype video for what you did, and he was like, "Hey, can you um, can you help Michelle out a little?" I said, "Yeah, we can certainly do something." And then we made it amazing, right? And then we made it badass. Should we share the story of how we tricked Phil? Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we can continue, um, why explain to people? Uh, I called you Michelle Mace, Karen. I, I on email I called you Mace. Um, just give a little bit of intro background to who you are before we tell the tricky Phil story. Yeah, for sure. So I have two names because the extra one is my call sign because I just kind of wrapped up my career in the Air Force after 13 years on active duty as an F-16 fighter pilot. The last three of those, I flew for the Air Force Thunderbirds. Uh, the last two, I was the lead solo for the Thunderbirds. Um, so if anyone saw the team fly 2019 through 2021, I was one of those six aircraft that they watched. Um, but yeah, I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin, and I grew up hunting with my dad. So that's kind of how... This has come full circle and why I'm on this podcast in the first place. You're like, why are we, are we here to talk about airplanes? Um, yeah, so I'm a keynote speaker now and an author, and I got connected with Robbie as I was one of the speakers at the SCI convention. That's right. That's right. And then Phil, Phil Hoon, good friend of ours, was helping you out, sort of making the connections. And he's like, hey, Roy, Mace has a, like a hype video that just have a look at it. And I looked at it and I said, that's good. But it's not great. Um, no, no, no offense to the person who made it. And as you said, it was someone did it for free. Like, hey, let me put oh, it together for you. And um, so we built you a badass hype video. And then knowing me, I'm a prankster. A lot of people don't know that I like pranking people. Um, this year at April Fools, I don't know if you saw it on, and it was actually a, a very good thought experiment. This year on April Fools, I posted a picture on our Instagram, which is obviously about hunting. We're all about hunting, conveying the truth about hunting. And I said Blood Origins was turning vegan. How'd that go over? Oh, it went over like a, you know, what's a good sudden saying, you know, like a, a, a fox in a hen house kind of thing. You know, it was, uh, it, it, it drived the most engagement I've had on a post in like two years. Okay, number one. So number one, number two, it told me, oh, you, everyone is actually seeing my stuff. Everyone sees Blood Origin stuff. They just don't engage with it because they're like, oh, that's good. That's interesting. Okay. 
which is fine. I don't care. Like uh, engagement to me doesn't really mean anything. Um, and 98% of the people that commented on that post said we were about to unfollow until we read the comments had never commented ever before on any Blood Origins piece, period. I feel like it should have been fairly obvious that it was an <laughs> April Fool's joke. Just considering, I don't know about you, but my social media was just in and I feel like every creator or business that I follow had some extreme April Fool's content this year. And it was just, I couldn't believe a single thing that I saw for the People did some great ones. Like Montana Knife Company teamed up with Nosla. And Nosla, the bullet company, the gun manuf- like the bullet manufacturer, they were going to come out with this b- new broadhead, like an arrow broadhead that was had a ballistic tip on it, and they engaged Hoyt, and they did something along the lines of they said, "Yeah, we brought it into our our digital ballistics lab and did all the coefficients of, you know, that you could fling this arrow two hundred yards and it wouldn't lose its trajectory." <laughs> it was just. It was so brilliantly done, and they did it with such, like, there was no humor at all. It was, like, the most serious marketing pitch for a a product ever. But so, back to the pranking, I said to you, you didn't know me from a bar of soap. We had done this video. Um, I said, hey, I'm going to put together another video that was terrible. And I'm going to send this to to you, and I'm going to send it to Phil. I'm going to I'm going to put it on a group text. I'm going to go here. It is. I'm so proud of this work. <laughs> and then I said, to, "What did I say to you?" I think you said, "Just go with it," or something like that. I don't remember exactly what you said, but I was I was on board. Yeah, you were on board. I said, I think I said to you, I said, "Hey, can you text Phil?" Uh, yes. The video, like separately, and go Phil. I know you put me in touch with this guy, but this is crap. <laughs> yeah, I, I do remember that. Now I texted him. I was like, hey, I was just expecting a little bit more. What do you think? Uh, and he was like, yeah, totally. I'll talk to Robbie. <laughs> and then I don't know how we did it. I just like, I maybe I FaceTimed him or something like that. And I just said, Phil, we're pulling your leg. Here's the real one. Oh, no. And then I said, oh, I cleaned it up a little bit. Here's, here's, the, here's the next iteration. And it was the badass one. Oh yeah, it's awesome. I use it now. Every speech I start, I it's my kickoff hype video, no matter who I'm in front of. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Anyway, so thanks, Phil, for playing along. It was a brilliant little prankster of a we video. We did find out later he was super sick and like on his deathbed, just <laughs> laying at home, barely and with a living, and he got this text and opened it and was so confused. So yeah. I felt a little bad afterwards, yeah. but Starting a fire that didn't need to be started on his deathbed, essentially. <laughs> totally. So, Michelle, when, um, in the Air Force and whatnot, you've obviously been around a lot of people. Um, when you left, how, let me ask this. Let me ask this question: How did you go from being like in the Air Force to being in the Blue Angels? Like, how? What is that transition like? Well, first, Thunderbirds, Blue Angels, Sorry. the Navy. Sorry. Oh, my God. I'm I know. Like, I know. Are you going to keep this in or edit it out? It's kind of I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to keep it in. No, I know. So it's funny because uh, people make that. They get the, the two confused all the time. And for me, I'm like, they're so different. But I think if you're not in that world, they're easily interchangeable with each other. So, right. Both demo teams. They're the only two jet teams in America. One belongs to the Navy, the Blue Angels. 
And then I flew for the Thunderbirds, which belongs to the Air Force. We have a friendly rivalry, but honestly, we work together. <laughs> and uh, the teams used to really not like each other and interact. Oh, but I'm now sure. We kind of pushed past that. We share best practices. We kind of bounce mm-hmm. ideas off each other. And that's been super beneficial. That's a whole other conversation. The, so, so let me reiterate the question then. What, what's the transition like? Or how does it happen that you go from the Air Force to flying for the Thunderbirds? Totally. So it's competitive. You have to apply. Um, there's some minimum requirements you have to meet. So you already have to be flying an Air Force fighter aircraft. And you have to have about 750 hours, which you're like, cool, what does that mean? It, to get to that point, it usually takes you about two full rotations or two full assignments, which are mm. three years each. So most of the pilots that are applying have already been flying in combat squadrons in a gray F-16 or a gray F-15 or any of the Air Force fighter aircraft for five or six years before they even meet the minimum requirement. So most of us have been deployed we've been doing that mission um and not everyone wants to to fly demonstrations so it's not like every single fighter pilot is competing for these spots you have to want to do it because there are some very specific demands to it and then you submit a paper application mine was about 50 pages it's like all your records uh, flying records uh check rides which are like aerial evaluations that you have throughout your career physical fitness tests officer performance reports. It's all of that stuff. And when I applied, I think somewhere around 30 people applied. And they narrowed well, how down many to spots? 12 for three spots. Okay. Yeah, they narrowed it down to 12 semifinalists. We all came out, shadowed the current Thunderbird team at an air show, did some interviews, and then they narrowed that down to six people. The finalists, they brought us back a few weeks later for another air show, more interviews. And then they pick the three from there. Mm. And it's like a mix of intentional kind of formal interviews with the base commander, who's a general, with all 12 officers that are currently on the team. But a lot of it is kind of them evaluating you during the informal inter- interactions. Like, could I spend 240 days a year on the road right. with this person and not strangle each other? Right, right. Um I think that's honestly the most important thing is the team dynamic and making sure the personalities mesh. You've also got to, I would think, got to have some sort of sort of personality to you so because you're interacting with the public too, aren't you? A lot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's one of the things that's not for everyone. And me personally, being a little more on the introverted side and kind of needing my time by myself to recharge my battery, that was the hardest part of the job for me was always being on in front of the public that once I learned the flying stuff early on, that was very challenging. But once I was there, you know, six months to a year, I was very proficient with the flying and the constant energy demands of being kind of the face of the Air Force. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I was singled out even more. I was the only woman flying for the team for the whole three years. So I constantly was being sought out by people, which gave me a really cool opportunity to inspire a lot of little girls, which is super rewarding, but also came with some responsibility yeah. and that part of the job could be really exhausting. Were you the first female in the Thunderbirds? So I was the fourth to fly in the demo. Okay. When So you talked about sort of your experience with squadrons. Again, I, I have no idea and I think a lot of people may not have any idea. Do you fly? Does the Air Force in combat missions in a, on assignments, are you flying in like squadron formations? 
So you are, but not like you would see in an air show. Okay. So the Thunderbirds, if people have seen that, you know, you'd see six jets were, me as a solo, we were close, as close as three feet apart. The Diamond, which is one through four, they get as close as 18 inches apart. In a normal combat squadron, you will fly what we call fingertip, um, where you're you're tucked in there pretty close next to the aircraft next to you. And that's useful if you're transiting through like weather. If you're in the clouds, you can hang with that person because you can still see them even mm. inside the cloud. Um, so it's really useful for that. But you're still substantially substantially further away than we are with the Thunderbirds. And you're flying generally straight and level. You might descend, you might climb, but you're not going upside down. You're not pulling Gs. You're not doing rolls. And so it's much more difficult flying with the Thunderbirds, where the combat side of the house, the difficulty comes in kind of the sensor management and the tactics, mm. because those are very complicated. But the physical part of flying the airplane becomes second nature very quickly. So that mm -hmm. part is not as demanding. Mm -hmm. Would you say that the Thunderbirds, in terms of the rolls and the Gs and the sort of different acrobatics, it's supposed to mimic, I guess, like a dogfight, right? So I guess parts of it, the high G stuff is representative of what you'd experience in a dogfight. I think it's really, the it's a huge recruiting tool. It's the biggest recruiting tool for the military between the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels. And it's really to showcase the precision and just the level of expertise that we can bring in the military in general, and then kind of give them some insight into this really cool piece of machinery that we use. Mm -hmm. And so it's just like a, a great way for the American public whose tax dollars are going to fund the military to kind of see what we can do. If they mm -hmm. don't have anyone in their family that's in the military, it can kind of be this like faceless entity that they don't really understand. And so it can give a personal connection and put a face with the Air Force or with the Thunderbirds. And then it's a lot of just shock and awe to see those powerful machines so up close. Um, yeah, so there's there's several different missions that the jet team has, but recruiting and inspiring the public in general are two of them. Is, is that kind of stuff happening in modern warfare today, like the dogfighting, like the the classic traditional World War Two, you know, two you know, riot, the the enemy and the allies going at each other, fighting in the air. That all you know, does that happen today at all at all anymore? So. It definitely could. Right now with the U.S., it doesn't. And the entire time I was in combat squadrons, we were, you know, in Afghanistan doing close air support. So we're we were very focused on dropping mm -hmm. uh, air to ground, you know, mm -hmm. bombs, missiles, mm -hmm. strafe, whatever, from the jet to targets on the ground. Luckily, the Taliban and ISIS didn't have any aircraft mm -hmm. um, to fly. So we had air superiority. But that's like one of the fundamental missions that all fighter pilots are taught and stay proficient in um we would have to be in a really big world war three would have to kick off for us right. to be in dogfighting situations so let's right. hope it doesn't come to that ever sure. but you do see uh with the war in ukraine you'll see footage of dogfights essentially happening yeah 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 that Russia is true that is true didn't they have so this like the ukrainian whatever they called him the guy who like took the out ghost. Like, the ghost like six or eight russian you know, jets himself. Yeah. So I was just listening to an audiobook that mentioned that, and there's still no proof that that actually happened and that specific person. I thought existed. I saw a video online of a jet 
shooting down another jet. Yeah, so that's happened. But okay. whether this one single pilot oh, went okay. and killed so many Russian aircraft and then, you know, ended up being killed himself and was kind of this martyr and for the cause. I think it's a mix of individual anecdotes that did happen and kind of this this legend that they created to mm. help help their cause, to mm -hmm. help like rally support and morale for their country because I think that's one of the most impressive things, right? That the Ukrainian military is fighting with with such like courage against a force that's so much bigger than theirs mm -hmm. and they're holding their own pretty mm -hmm. well and mm -hmm. so it's it's pretty crazy to watch and it's pretty inspiring to see just their relentless like resistance they're willing to put up mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no it's incredible it's so, certainly a very very foreign world to me obviously i'm american now but raised in south africa and you know just raised on i don't know if you know the author but I was raised in a book by a guy called Wilbur Smith, which is a, he's an African author. He's sort of, he's written probably 70 books, sort of family line type books starting back in like the 1700s. And um, I'm currently rereading them all in sequence and in chronological order. And one of the books that I'm reading is called Burning Shore. And one of the sons um, is in sort of, uh, French territory, German, it's like 19, I guess it's set in like 1941 kind of scenario. And he's a dogfighter pilot for the British as a South African. Um, anyway, it, it was just fortuitous that you are on the podcast today and I'm reading that at the same time. Yeah, I mean, there's some historical stories that are totally true from the various world wars and other engagements that are just they're just mind blowing, and I think the way we fight today is just so different than that. Like the mm -hmm. the level of like mental toughness and grit that people had then mm -hmm. is just insane. We're just it's just so different now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, talking about how things are different now, um, you said in the beginning that you 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 hunted as a kid mm -hmm. with your with your dad. Yes, yeah, northern Wisconsin, small town. Um, white deer tail camp, deer camp type setup. Oh, to, so the sugar shack is yep. what yeah. what it's called. It, it doesn't have uh, running water. It has an outhouse. It's got you know mice that live there as well. When sure, hunting season's not in effect. Um, we lived like twenty minutes away, so we would stay at our house and just drive over each morning. But the guys that came from out of town would sleep upstairs. All these little cots lined up, like it's. Pretty bare could you bones. Um, uh, the uh, could you imagine the as my as my film crew that you I think you got to meet them a little bit um, mm -hmm. say a snorkestra. I thought you were gonna for sure, and I also thought you were gonna say the smell because <laughs> <laughs> you know that they're not. There's no shower there, so sure, they're, sure, they're all weak, and we would do drives and so if you're one of the people that's walking through a swamp and like fighting through elderbrush you're getting sweaty and mm -hmm. yeah it's gross i'm glad i didn't have to sleep there and i was you know i started walking along with my dad when i was probably like seven or eight years old well before i could have my own tag and carry my own rifle and i i really loved it thanksgiving was my favorite holiday because of that because people are always like you don't you like that better than Christmas, and I just loved going hunting with him so much. Mm. Do you find, and maybe this is, and you know, 
if you had a new, if you have a neutral opinion on this, this is, that's perfectly fine too. Do you find that has your opinion around hunting changed for you, and how you express yourself around hunting now that you are more in the public space in the public eye? That's a good question because when I first got connected with Phil and with SCI, that was one of my concerns: was will this turn off a portion of my viewers? Right. Because it's it's outside of my normal. I speak to corporate audiences all the time and most of them are just neutral. Right. People could care less one way or the other. Um, And I think there's a lot of opinions around hunting. And then you get into that being closely tied to guns. And that's just such a contentious topic right now. And everyone's so divided. And you can't even have conversations with people about things. They'll just unfollow. Right. Like your your April Fool's Fool's post. Uh, and so I did worry about that. And I was like, is this going to be like a a branding dance that I have to do? And the more I learned about I had never been to an SCI convention. I grew up hunting all the time. But when I went to college and then especially when I entered active duty, I just didn't have time for hobbies. I couldn't come home during seasons. I lived in Japan for three years across the country the rest of the time. So I just hadn't gone in such a long time. And I felt very like kind of out of touch with the community. Mm-hmm. And I only really had my small perspective of growing up in Wisconsin and whitetail and black bear. And I knew that the industry is so big, right? And it's so diverse. Mm-hmm. Like that's mm-hmm. just a small, tiny little example. You have, I mean, going to the convention and seeing all of the different countries that were represented there. Oh, it's amazing. All the different, some of the game that was represented, I didn't even know existed. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, what is that thing? Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was pretty stunning. And I the more I got to know people as we led up to it, yourself included, everyone was just amazing. Mm. And I was like, I don't once I got there, the more people I met, everyone was so welcoming. There was none of this like none of it felt controversial or like I need to worry about how it was portrayed to the public. And I shared that I was there several times. I did some live stuff on my social media. I didn't get a single negative comment. Really? So That's amazing. If people didn't like it, they unfollowed quietly. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't notice any uh, backlash at all, but that was one of my initial concerns. So how do we, you're, an, you're a, you know, in the influencing space, in the, you know, dare we say that. Um, I know a lot of people in the same situation that you are in. I don't know them personally. But I know that they have big followings, they have big communities, and they're hunters. But they don't say anything mm-hmm. about hunting. Or it's, Why do you think that they don't, Mace? I think that if that's... I guess it depends what their brand is based around. And I think people worry that if it's not somehow focused around the outdoor space and kind of all the different industries and brands that overlap with the hunting space, that it will distract from their main mission because it really triggers some people that, Mm -hmm. no pun intended, Mm -hmm. it really triggers some people and they will get, you know, very spun up over it and get very focused on that when that's just a small part of what that person does in totality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, I'm encouraged Because, again, one of our missions, the reason why we're having this conversation is that one of my missions is, through Blood Origins, is having a platform that is a little, I always say, it's a little grayer 
It's not in your face, rah, 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 hunter, you know, beat your chest, bunch of trophy pictures, kill pictures, that kind of stuff. It's more like, hey, let's have a discussion. Let's talk to your heart. Let's talk to your mind. Let's talk to your soul. And I think that that's a little softer for oh, people for sure. to get involved with and get in, in and be willing to talk about it in that kind of sort of lens. Um, and I'll use an example. Um, you may you may know her name. I don't know if you know her or not. Her name's Jen Wiederstrom. She's a fitness. Um, okay. She's a. She's a fitness coach, life coach, nutrition coach. She's in LA, um, works with some monstrous um, celebrities. Like she's the personal trainer for John Mayer, you know, you know big, big, big people in totally. her circles. And I met her through um, a, a chance Instagram engagement in that she commented on a big charity page that posted a picture about a crocodile. and. I knew who shot the crocodile. I'd seen the pictures. I'd even seen video that nobody's seen. And they wrote this thing about a crocodile. Most of it was false. And then I was tagged in it. Blood Origins was tagged in it. So then I commented. And then I always scroll to see who's commented on these big accounts. And Jen commented saying, that's disgusting. So I slid into her DMs. I said, hey, Jen, you don't know me from Bar Soap, but we run in the same circles. We've got similar friends that engage with you and engage with us. I just want to let you know that, you know, I saw your comment. And I said, I know a lot about that, that crocodile. Specifically, when they opened its belly, it had six pairs of shoes in its stomach. It was a known man-eater. She was like, oh, my God, I had no idea. I said, yeah, because these people aren't posting this for the truth, they're posting it to elicit reactions that would generate money for their nonprofit that doesn't do anything for wildlife conservation. She's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. And so anyway, we, we crossed paths physically at Winterstrong. And I said, why don't you come on my podcast? And you can ask me anything you want about hunting. And she did. And so that was the title of it, Wildlife Conservation Through Hunting? Question mark. And her... This is what her quote was, you defend something I unfollow on Instagram. Totally. And we podcast for an hour and a half and she collaborated with us across to her community on the page. And I was like, I can't believe she said yes to it. And then number two, she said that, um, she said, I changed my mind. That's awesome. And and to, to your point as well, I didn't see hardly any negativity in just the post of us. There was a, a hunting-related podcast. There was no negativity from her community. And I think it's just about the way that it was couched. Yeah. I think some of it is just unwarranted fear about being judged. And like social media can be just such a cruel place. And when you are in a business where your brand is so ingrained with your image in that space, one person on a vendetta against you can do a lot of damage. Yeah. And so it's scary to bring up things that might piss people off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just, I, you know, I, again, I have this mission that I think I want to get into more mainstream communities 
totally have them being able to say, hey, yeah, I'm a hunter and I want to talk about hunting and talk about it in the kind of context we're talking about it in. Um, have you hunted outside the U.S. at all? I have not, no. Does Hopefully, your... I, going to SCI and seeing all of the amazing <laughs> places, I'm like, I want to go there and there and there. Does your... I, I'm going to call him your husband. I don't know if he's a husband or partner. Is, does your husband hunt? So he doesn't. He didn't grow up doing it. You're up in a big sports family. But he uh, was like wide-eyed at the SCI convention. He was like, holy smokes. Because he had no concept of the world that world at all so i think he was just overstimulated by how much <laughs> is there but interesting for him so he was in the marines and he was he was in fallujah so he has a lot of experience with firearms in general he was a designated marksman and a turret gunner so he has fired way more rounds than i mm. will in a lifetime uh but at a very different target right and so he just never translated that use of firearms into the civilian sector. I think that was a pretty, I mean, they saw some shit. So that was a traumatic time. And I think he kind of closed that chapter and just went back to day-to-day being in the business world, sports world, all that kind of stuff. Um, he's definitely not opposed to it. He was there and he's like, I would love to go to some of these places. <laughs> and I think he he asked me a few times, he's like, people are so passionate about it and he's like i don't quite get it and i was like i think if you went and you experienced and this is only me reflecting on my time as a kid not even doing it as an adult uh and my stuff was done like such a small scale like i think if you went and you experienced all the like strategy and the effort that goes into it and we love being outdoors we do a lot of outdoor hobbies like hiking and rock climbing and camping and we just love being out in nature. So I think you bring in that element of now you're figuring out how to work with the outdoors to achieve this objective. And it's just a very, it's very empowering, but it's also like, um, I like mountaineering. And one of the things I really enjoy is going up the summit and watching or going up on the way to the summit and watching the sun come up on the side of a mountain. And mm-hmm. I feel like it's almost a spiritual experience, right? It's just mm-hmm. so relaxing up there i feel like you get to experience that as well when you're trying to be one um totally. with, with nature and achieve this objective yeah. and so i think he would like it if he got out there yeah i totally agree and i think people you know one of the pieces of rhetoric that we constantly combat is and it's probably the main ones like hunters you know you hunters you're just killers all you do is you love to kill i'm like okay uh well, number one, we have 75 episodes on Blood Origins and 73 like iPhone selfie videos about why people hunt. So 150 testimonials from all around the world, none of which say we do it because we love to kill. Right. So there's that. Number two, if that was the case, we would be volunteering our services at the local abattoir. Okay. Because they charge people. Actually, no, sorry. They pay people to kill animals. If hunters are all about killing, hunters will do it voluntarily. They don't. Three, if you go scientifically and you look at the, the, the largest hunter population in the world is the hunter that chases white-tailed deer, like you and your dad, against the highest population of animals, which is the white-tailed deer in the United States. And you look at the statistics of success rates by license holder, 
the number in the United States is 49%, 48%. I.e. 48% of people that hold a license actually kill a deer. Now, doesn't mean we're shitty hunters. It just means that we must be doing it for another reason other than the success of the kill. Totally. Canada, the number is 36% for your first year. It's less than 1% for a second year. So there's three pieces of rhetoric to say, well, no, you're making that up. It's, it's like, here's the emotional side that says no. Here's the logical side that says no. And here's the science that says no. What else do you want us to say? Yeah, I think there's a certain point where it doesn't matter what evidence <laughs> you show people. They're just like, well, I don't care. That's yeah. my opinion. 100%, which is, you know, what they say about opinions. Everyone has one, right? Yep. Mace, is, if, if someone's listening to this, they're in your community, they're not a hunter. What, what, what are they? And you're like, they're like, man, I can't believe Mace hunts. What's my reaction to that? Yeah. What would you say to them? I guess I would ask why they have that reaction. Like, what is it about me that they would think that I didn't do that? I think there's a lot of parallels between the hunting community and military in general. And so I would think that they wouldn't be all that surprised, honestly. Um, But I think it's usually just a lack of education. Like all the evidence that you just brought up, that's just one little tiny objection that people have. There's all kinds of different ones, right? People imagine that every hunter is out there just trophy hunting and then they just leave the animal to rot. Totally. Uh, And from what I've seen, that is definitely not the case at all. And you, I know you do a great job of talking about how it, sustains cultures and economies and controls population and then there's the conflict between wildlife populations that just go unchecked and humans and like what are your priorities in that space so i think it's just a lack of education and i mean i'm even learning a lot kind of being reconnected to the space and it's a good reminder that i didn't really need to worry about it being controversial because yeah, yeah. i think you think of the worst case scenario and that's probably poaching, which hunters aren't supporting. Like, right, we're anti-poaching. Well, no, yeah, exactly. Well, people conflate those two things all the time. Yeah, and totally. for those listening here that are not in our community, that are in your community, and for the next time you're interacting with someone that says, oh, hunters are just poachers, all you have to say is like, okay, what you're saying is this, that shopping and shoplifting are the same thing. It's a great analogy. Yeah, totally. I, I, cl- I do not claim that. Amy Dickman, a non-hunter vegetarian in the UK, said it first. But it's a great thing. Use it. Shopping and shoplifting are totally different. One's legal, one's illegal. And then you can c- keep going down this, you know. Think about it like this. If you're, when you're shopping for a watermelon or you're shopping for a cantaloupe, you are very selective in the watermelon and cantaloupe you take. When you're shoplifting, you're just grabbing the first thing you see and you're running out the door with it. Yeah. So. No, for real. And now that I've I've been following a lot of different, um, I, I don't want to call them influencers, content creators in the hunting space since I've been connected with so many people over the last six months. And I've seen them on trips and the animals that they've harvested. And they talk about, you know, this was like a very old animal and it came to the herd and it that might make for a great trophy in the end but it also is keeping 
the population healthy, right? They're not taking the prime animals that are right at like that are creating all the young that are sustaining the population. They're taking the ones that have been there a long time that are mature. They're making intentional choices with that. And there's so much more that goes into it than just going out and shooting at whatever moves. Yeah. Again, you know, you'd, uh, an anti-hunter would prefer you not to hunt. Okay. They'd prefer you not to kill. But someone who has a little bit of logic in their brain, you'd ask them, you know, like, why are you killing the biggest trophies? Like, that's all you're after. And like, they just happen to be tied to the oldest, maturest male. Would you prefer us to shoot females? Right. Would you prefer us to shoot young animals? Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, so then what's the problem with shooting old males? They're done. They're not reproductively successful anymore. They've contributed their genetics to the population. They just so happen to have the biggest horn antler structure because of age. Yep. Yeah, for sure. So there's, it's tough these days because a lot of people don't take the time to ask questions. I think we could do well with instead of initially judging things, just being more curious and learning a little bit. Um, and then making our own informed decision. And I could really care less whether someone doesn't personally want to hunt, right? Like, it's not for everyone, just like right. any hobby that you would take or or passion or whatever, not everyone falls in that camp. Right. I think it's good for them to understand why other people make that decision and respect it. 100%. 100%. Well, Mace, I appreciate you coming on. Um, I appreciate your friendship. Um, I'm, I'm glad to know you. I uh, had a great time with you in Nashville. Hopefully our, cro- our paths will cross someday. I don't know when. Uh, hopefully they will. And if you need anything from me, please don't hesitate to reach out. No, absolutely. Thanks for having me on and for all your support and your epic hype reel that gets shown <laughs> multiple times a month. I mean, thousands of people have seen it at this time. People are always like, that was so cool. That's so brilliant. That. That's brilliant. You're welcome. Well, that's it for today. Appreciate you listening. As always, leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.